0: Alright everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Hardwood Homies NBA Draft Podcast. I'm your host Jackson Hoy and joining me on the other line is Cesar Smokowski. How's it going Cesar?
1: Hey what's going on man, doing well. Everybody thanks for tuning in to the most dangerous sports podcast in the world, Hardwood Homies. Man, a lot to talk about. You've been doing some big things out here Jackson, so uh, it should be an action-packed episode.
0: Yeah for sure. Uh, The big things that Cesar's mentioning is... Today I released my NBA draft notebook of my top 75 prospects. It is 79 pages in, in length currently. You can go find it at rebrand.ly slash jhoy That's rebrand.ly slash j-h-o-y d-r-a-f t. If you want to check that out, that's our 75 that's my top 75 prospects in this year's draft. I've got in-depth analysis on each of those guys, and we're going to be talking about that. My, I guess it's my big board. We're going to be talking about my big board on today's episode, and I know, Cesar, you had some questions about my big board, but before we get started, I would like to remind everyone to go leave a review on iTunes. Uh, once again, we've had some great success in the past week with our listeners. We've been getting a lot of traffic, and we really appreciate it. Uh, it's been awesome, the support that we've been getting from our listeners, but again, leaving reviews really helps, and we really appreciate it when our listeners do that, but yeah, Cesar... Uh, So uh, let's get right into this with the big board. Uh, What was the first thing you wanted to talk about, Cesar?
1: Yeah, man, quite a uh, fascinating list of potential targets in the draft. So good job, a lot of fascinating information. The first guy uh, I want to talk about, outside of our two top picks, we both really like Fultz and Isaiah. I excuse me, Isaac uh, as the top two picks. And then, so the fascinating part about. Uh, changes and the big boy that I've seen so far was my man De'Aaron Fox at number three, uh, up two spots on what Draft Express has him, so of course we both noted that he did well at the Combine showed off his incredible speed but when you think about it, what what was the big thing that separated him from other guys like Lonzo and other point guards in this draft for you, going into uh, the draft in a couple weeks?
0: Well, the reason that I really like De'Aaron Fox is, as you mentioned, that blinding speed. You know, obviously he tested well at the Combine in terms of his size and everything, but the blinding speed is something that we'd seen from him this season at Kentucky. And that just, it sets up the rest of his game. You know, it's part of the main reason that, it's part of one of the many reasons that he is a great defender on that end. He moves around so well. He is so quick and it allows him to use his nice size and length against point guards and be a nuisance on that end. And then offensively, he's got those questions with his jump shot. There's no question that his jump shot uh, needs to improve. I mean, thir- 24.6% from three, 36% on two-point jumpers. Not good numbers, but he's he's got that blinding speed, and he was able to be a really great scorer this season at Kentucky, even through the issues he had with his jump shot, which that really stood out to me just because I think his speed and ability to get to the rim almost transcends shooting and then the other thing for him that I just love so much is his incredible competitiveness his competitive spirit is maybe the best in this draft of anyone just in terms of being such a ridiculous competitor who's always working to get better and that was something that I really loved seeing from him and it jumped out at me and I think that that competitive spirit will either help him fix that jump shot or find ways to overcome it
1: yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, I mean, I like Fox a lot. I think he has a great, a lot of flashy skills, and he certainly looked good at Kentucky. Of course, I think, you know, at, at this point in the NBA and where we're headed, I, I think that the, you have to have, there's a big concern if you're taking a point guard this high with uh, a lack of shooting or a, a form that's not yet developed, you know, where you have a guy that's shooting less than 25% from three. So if you have a guy that hasn't, you know, made those progressions yet, I think that there's certainly a... Uh, uh, you have to war on the side of caution, but I think that he's certainly uninteresting, an and I like his speed and his physical tools, but it'll be interesting if he goes that high above someone as highly publicized as Lonzo.
0: Yeah, I just... In terms of him versus Lonzo, I mean, you look at what they had a matchup in the NCAA tournament, Kentucky versus UCLA, and De'Aaron Fox torched Lonzo. He put up 39 points and held Lonzo to 10. And obviously, I mean, head-to-head matchups aren't the number one way you grade prospects, but that was one that really stood out to me because it showed me that, you know, well, A, it showed me Lonzo's on-ball questions defending point guards. Um, I'll, I'll, We have uh, more planned this, later this week talking about Lonzo's defense, and I don't think he's a terrible defender, but In terms of smaller, quicker point guards and his on-ball ability against them, I think that De'Aaron Fox really exposed that using his speed to get by Alonzo, who's not really the quickest lateral athlete or the quickest athlete to stay with a guy like Fox. And then it just showed Fox's ability to be a dynamic offensive player even without that jumper threat. I mean, anyone who can put up 39 points without really having any sort of a jump shot threat, it just shows you how advanced they are in terms of their speed, their ability to get in the lane, and their craftiness around the rim. I mean, Darren Fox has a great floater game already, which is good because that's pretty much an essential skill for NBA point guards to have, especially point guards like Fox who don't have jumper threats and who are thin and don't necessarily have the ability to finish into contact near the rim. So that was just... Fox, I I do think that he'll be able to overcome that jumper question, but, I mean, like pretty much any prospect in this draft outside of Fultz, you can find something that says... Here's a reason why he might not work, and that's why this draft is so fascinating outside of Markel Fultz.
1: Yeah, that's certainly an interesting point. Uh, For a guy that, you know, is his size, and he's not a super built-up guy, even though he's uh, in great shape, he certainly is a really good finisher at the rim and works well in the paint, so that's certainly something to consider and an advantage of his speed and how he uses it. The second guy that I want to talk about You about is your guy ranked number sixth, one of the uh under the radar prospects for a lot of people, Jonah Bolden. Uh, excuse me, after uh Fox, we have of course Josh Jackson, where he's been mocked a lot of times at four or three, and then five, which is Lonzo, who shifted down a little bit but not two jacks. So, uh, with Your guy Jonah Bolden, uh, a small forward slash power forward from Australia, he was one of the biggest surprises to people who may not be familiar with the podcast in how high we both put Jonah Bolden on our boards in recent weeks. So, Jackson, why do you think Jonah Bolden hasn't shot up other people's boards like he has ours yet? Uh, In comparison, Express has him 48, which is crazy compared to ours so what what do you think has stopped other people from being exposed to jordan bolden as much as we have
0: well i think part of it is the international element of it i think a lot of people are you know more reluctant to scout international players just because their game footage is less readily available i mean you don't turn on espn and there's Radnicky basket versus mega vizera you know and of course draft express generally prioritizes the uh local guys, the uh, American guys, when they're doing their scouting videos and that sort of thing. I mean, they have a scouting video they did for Jonah Bolden, but generally, you know, the draft coverage is centered around these guys. So I think a lot of it is just that mainstream draft community avoiding guys like Bolden. But then I also think that some of it is, you know, the age freaks in the draft process who, there's sort of two camps. There's the people who say, you know, it doesn't really matter how old a guy is when he comes out. It's a matter of, is he good? Does he have potential to grow? Does he have potential to translate to the NBA? And then there are those people who say, you know, always draft the youngest guys. Age, age should matter more than anything else. I mean, some people aren't that radical, but some people really consider age a huge factor and will just refuse to put a guy who's Jonah Bolden's age. Jonah Bolden's 21, for reference, for everyone who's listening and isn't familiar. Jonah Bolden's 21 years old. He'll be 20. Uh, he'll be 22, I believe, in next January. I want to say. So. For some people who are big on age and who think that, you know, you draft 19 year olds in the lottery and that's that. You don't take anyone who's older than 19 in the lottery, then I guess that that is where some people could be coming from. But outside of that, he's got questionable free throw percentage. That's another thing to watch. But other than that, I really don't think that there's a whole lot that people could be missing. And if they at least pay attention to him and watch his game, I just think his lack of exposure has been due to he hasn't been exposed to the mainstream draft community.
1: Makes sense. He certainly is an interesting guy coming out of Europe. Do uh, The other question to this uh, element is do you hold his performance at UCLA, which may have been under the radar for a lot of people or wasn't as successful as he was in Europe? Do you hold his poor performance in uh, college against him? or ha- ha- How do you uh, view that year of his basketball career.
0: Well, I think at UCLA, the main issue that he had was he just wasn't being played in a role that was conducive to him. Uh he I mean, the thing is he said he was being played at power forward, he wanted to play small forward, but in Europe this year with Radnicki Basket, he's really played power forward again, but I think the difference is he's had the ball in his hands on the perimeter more and he's really thrived. I mean, you look at UCLA last year, he attempted 36 three-pointers in 31 games. And you know he wasn't that successful. He was he shot nine for thirty six. That's not very good, but uh, I think that you have to account some of that to the fact that you know he's just gotten better. I mean, players improve a lot in the ages from when they're eighteen to when they're whenever you know players' improvement ages changes. But it's not hard to figure out that maybe a guy just gets better. You know, so I don't completely hold that against him. I would consider it a bit of a red flag offensively, but I mean, playing against some of these really good teams in the Adriatic League, that's That's some legit competition. You know, he's not just beating up on completely trash teams. And one of the things I want to point out with him coming out of the Adriatic League, the award for the Adriatic League Young Player of the Year, uh, or the Adriatic League Best Young Player. In 2014, it was given to Dario Saric. 2015, it was given to Nikola Jokic. 2016, it was given to Ante Zizic, who, for those who aren't familiar, went 23rd in the draft last year to the Celtics, was stashed. This year, proceeded to lead the Adriatic League in scoring and a bunch of scouts have said that if he were eligible for this year's draft, he'd go in the top 10, which shows how well he's played and how much of a boon Boston has in getting him. And then this year, the Adriatic League best young player was Jonah Bolden. So you have Saric and Jokic, two guys. I mean, Jokic is a star. Dario Saric was basically probably going to end up being second in this year's Rookie of the Year to either Malcolm Brogdon or Joel Embiid. But he's, he's up there for Rookie of the Year. He played really well. So that's something that I think people really should pay attention to in terms of considering the uh, competition that Jonah Bolden went up against and then how he stacked up. And yes, the other red flag that I'd have for him is his free throw shooting because between the Serbian League and the Adriatic League this season, he's only shot around 60%, which is a number that I definitely would say people should be wary of because that's not very good. But I mean, something that is underrated for him is he's an incredible impactor on defense. I mean, this season with... a uh, Radnički, he's generated a ton of steals and blocks. I mean, just uh, yesterday against Red Star, which is a yearly caliber team, he ended up with six steals, and he's got a six foot 10, seven, six foot ten uh, body with a seven two wingspan, and he's a freak athlete. So even if he never becomes much on offense, you know, I think I still I think he's a great shooter. I've seen his jump shot. He's shooting 42 uh, percent this year in the Adriatic League on 4.2 attempts per game. So I, I believe in his jump shot. But even if he doesn't amount to much on offense. He's still a phenomenal athlete who's going to be a big-time contributor on defense and can switch a lot. So I, I'm just a huge fan of his game, and I think that if the mainstream draft community starts covering him more, he'll start to move up.
1: Yeah, he certainly has done a lot in, uh, the Euro- in, in Europe and has shown all of his huge potential. So that certainly will be an interesting case study. So, going off of Jordan Bolden, we have at number seven, my guy, Dennis Smith Jr. from NC State. That's, you know, typical. We've seen a lot of that, and that's a decent place for him. And then we have at eight, we have Markkinen, uh, from Arizona. And then number nine is an interesting guy that I'd like to talk about, Jason Tatum from Duke, uh, the small forward slash power forward. You ranked him at number nine, which, you know, seems fine, but... uh while a lot of people you know we know that we've talked about him at length back in the soundcloud days but jackson can you just break it down for any of the new listeners on itunes what's been the big thing holding you back from seeing tatum as a top 10 talent guy
0: well i mean i've got him at number nine i think he's a top 10 talent but it's just a matter of me not seeing him as a top five talent is that what you meant to say top five
1: yeah yeah sorry oh you're
0: good yeah top top five talent for tatum you know for me, it just comes down to uh, I think Tatum has all the tools as a scorer. Um, he's got a great physical profile. He's really advanced in the mid range. I mean, watching him score out of the post and out of the mid range is really thrilling. He's he's got a lot of tricks. He's he's very good at that. He's you know he's in that last season according to Synergy, he was in the 99th percentile as a post scorer. I mean, the man you throw him the ball, he can get you a bucket. It's that simple. He's he is a good scorer. A great score even. And a lot of what what he does should translate to the NBA. You know, he shot eighty five percent on free throws. He he's got pick and pop upside. I mean, he only shot thirty four point eight percent for three last year, but his jumper looks fairly good, and he shot eighty five percent on free throws, which is a good sign going forward. And I think he's gonna be able to, to be a guy who scores from all three levels, but my issue with him is I don't know what else he does. And that's that's the big question about Jason Tatum is what else does he bring to an NBA offense? You know, I've talked about him being compared to Andrew Wiggins uh, back on the SoundCloud days, as you mentioned. Uh, I, I make that Wiggins comparison because if you look at their college stats, they're remarkably similar. I mean, I'm not going to go all the way into it, but their their shooting percentages, their percentages of what shots they took from where on the court, their uh, their uh, three point attempt percentages, their steal percentages, their block percentages. Their value stats, even, like win shares per 40, were just really close to each other. They were very similar. I mean, obviously, I'm not comparing him strictly to Andrew Wiggins, but just in terms of being that player who's, you know, a great scorer. But, and so some people might be thinking, oh, Andrew Wiggins, he was the number one pick. He's awesome. But Andrew Wiggins this season ranked pretty poorly in a lot of value statistics. Uh, Wiggins was negative uh, 2.7 box plus minus, a negative 0.6 uh value over a replacement player and a negative 1.61 rpm real plus minus from espn that ranked 48th out of all small forwards and so it just shows like these these guys who are exclusively scorers basically aren't the best fit for the modern nba and just because they don't add to a team and they're not versatile and they don't bring enough on defense and i'm just worried that Tatum's going to fall into that same category i mean people have talked about Rudy Gay, Tobias Harris, that sort of thing. And I think Wiggins is falling into that same sort of trap with those two other guys. And I'm worried that Tatum is the next guy in line. You know, I'm hoping that he's not because I do think he's got a lot of skill as a scorer. And he's flashed, you know, some pretty good athleticism, some, even some defensive ability when he wants to. But it's just, he's not very physical. He's not super intense all the time. And I'm just worried about him contributing other things and being a winning player versus just a scorer
1: makes sense uh it seems like i think that the way it'll work out is jason tatum is one of those guys where his rookie year he'll come in and he'll certainly make big flashy plays and he'll probably contest with uh you know guys like faults and simmons for rookie of the year but you know he may hit his ceiling very quickly so you think about how he can develop over time where I, I think that at Duke, he was spectacular, but that may be the best that he probably will ever be. So he certainly has a fantastic post game and can score from three as well. He has a good shot, but you have to wonder, yeah, what else does he contribute? So that makes a lot of sense. Just clearing up, you know, what people may not understand all the way or what people don't see. So that makes a lot of sense. Uh, So uh, my next guy that I wanted to discuss with you about is Donovan Mitchell, who was the uh, point guard slash shooting guard. Uh, He was ranked number 12. Now, this may be because I have a different perspective about Donovan Mitchell, but why give the man such a high spot, Jackson? From solely what he did at Louisville, he seems like very inconsistent to me. You know, he had 10 games where he didn't even score 10 points and looked sort of completely out of his element, but uh, what made you put him above guys like Malik Monk and other, you know, sort of those combo point shooting guards?
0: Yeah, uh, I do see Donovan Mitchell as more of a shooting guard at the next level, just because I don't think he's flashed enough as a point guard, but uh, some people have listed him as a combo guard, so I listed him as a shooting guard slash point guard, but the thing with Mitchell for me was, yeah, he, he didn't, he was really inconsistent at Louisville, and he shot pretty poorly, you know. He was around 41% from the floor last year. He only shot like 49% at the rim. And he he had some bad shot selection, but the thing for me with Mitchell was just he has incredible upside, and I think he has realistic upside for what he can grow into. I mean, you look at the way, just the growth between his freshman and sophomore year at Louisville, he got so much better as a shooter and scorer and improved his efficiency a lot between those two seasons. And... Uh, everything I've heard about him, uh, people are really impressed with his work ethic. He's a very well-put-together young man. People really think he's a, like a great kid. He was a good worker, so I would be confident that he could continue on his trajectory of improving. Yeah, he improved from a 25% shooter to a 35% shooter from his freshman to sophomore season, which was good to see. And his free throw percentage improved by four 5 percentage points as well, which is just a sign that he got better as a shooter overall and his stroke is improving and then you factor in his elite physical tools six foot three with a six foot ten wingspan uh as we mentioned last week he won a lot of the combine drills just out of his pure athleticism and so when you combine that explosiveness and athleticism with you know that very realistic upside that he has a chance to reach I was just you know he, he was originally lower for me I had him around 18 or 19 but the more I thought about it and the more I kind of just considered the fact that, you know, what, what can this kid grow into? What What is it that he can become, and what's his realistic upside? I just thought about the fact that he's a guy who I can very easily see becoming a very good player just because he has a tangible upside, he's a good worker, and I think he can reach that level.
1: That, yeah, that's sir, very interesting. I liked Donovan Mitchell. He certainly looked good at the combine, but, you know, I'm worried about... His performance at Louisville, of course, he had some really good games, nine games where he scored over 20 points. But he certainly, went, when he had periods where his shot wasn't falling or and he wasn't hot from three-point uh, land, he didn't look too comfortable. So I think that he certainly has a good uh, physical embody, embodiment of, you know, that shooting guard spot. And it seems like a good spot for him at that 12 spot, but it certainly will be interesting to see how people value its production at Louisville versus his standout, uh, excuse me, his out measurements and evaluations at the combine. So that's interesting. Uh, so, how, how, similarly, two guys that you have back to back: Donovan Mitchell, at number twelve, and then you have Malik Monk, the presumed shooting guard out of Kentucky, one below him. What what do you think is the big difference, or uh, is there a substantial gap between those two, or are they very similar in the roles that you think they'd be playing?
0: Um, I didn't actually have a huge gap between Donovan Mitchell and Malik Monk, just because I think Malik Monk, I think they're different players for sure. I don't think they'll play similar roles, but I do think that you know it just came down to upside for me, and it just has to do with size, really, because. Donovan Mitchell, I think, has much more of a chance of being a scary defender, and then uh, I just think Monk doesn't really have that ability because of his size. I mean, you look at his six foot three height with a six six wingspan versus Mitchell with a six foot three height with a six ten wingspan, and then just a much more chiseled frame than Malik Monk. You know, Malik Monk's much thinner than Mitchell, and then even last season, Mitchell just showed more on the defensive end than Monk did, and Monk. I think his offensive game is a little bit overrated because he relied a lot on really difficult shots, and while it's valuable to be able to hit those difficult shots, he's going to have more struggles against longer, more athletic NBA defenders that can make those difficult shots that much more difficult. I mean, obviously, putting 47 on Justin Jackson was pretty damn impressive at Madison Square Garden, but at the same time... I would be worried about his ability to get shots off against NBA defenders. And whereas Mitchell, I think Monk will probably end up being a better offensive player than Mitchell. But I think Mitchell will be close enough on offense and much better on defense if they both reach their full upsides that I'd rather have Mitchell than Monk.
1: That's interesting. I I, I really liked Monk. Don't don't ever remind me of that time that he completely torched Justin Jackson. (laughs) But he certainly was uh, a really dynamic player at Kentucky, and I think that he may be able to overcome, you know, those shortcomings, as you're talking about being a smaller guy with not a great wingspan, but the sure amount of, you know, confidence that he has in his shot is incredible, so I think that both of them will be interesting in how they develop, so that's certainly an interesting comparison, and what roles they're going to be playing in the future. So uh, going on from there, those were your two uh, presumed uh, shooting guards going, of course, uh, 12 and 13. So those were not too drastic changes except for Monk fell a little compared to where I've seen him in other drafts. And then moving on to our next guy who is certainly an interesting case on where he falls is Frank Nilakina. The uh, shooting guard slash point guard out of uh, Strasbourg. So uh, this is crazy to me, Jackson. How often, right? Think about this. How often do you get a point guard of Frank's caliber who is five? F- f- excuse me, six five with a crazy six, a uh, seven foot wingspan. He he's a good sh- distributor and shooter, right? We've talked about that before. So why why isn't he breaking into the top? You know that echelon of point guards where you have a fault a uh excuse me a fault a ball a uh fox what 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 is holding him back from being in that sort of same caliber as those guys for you
0: well there's two things with frank neilichina that really stood out for me the first is uh i don't really think he is a point guard like the rest of those guys i think his playmaking skills are just not nearly developed to where they need to be just because He's got so much, so many issues with ball handling in terms of turning the ball over and just not taking care of it, decision making, that sort of thing that you need to have to be a pure point guard. And while he's got some good passing vision, some good feel already, I just don't consider him a full point guard at this time. And then another thing that doesn't put him up there with those guys for me is all those guys are really incredible athletes and certainly they're incredible athletes in different ways. You know, you have... Fultz's incredible body control and explosiveness, you have Ball's leaping ability and uh, speed and transition, you have De'Aaron Fox's blinding speed and just impressive hops where he can get way up and dunk all over people, and then you have Smith who's just like, just a, I guess like a, a lightning, lightning in a bottle who can just fly out and explode everywhere, whereas Neil Akina, he's not much of an athlete, he's really just kind of a, I mean, he's somewhat fast, but what he really has is these very long strides that allow him to get all over the court, but he's not overly explosive. He's not overly quick, and those are the things that I worry about with him, along with the fact that I just don't know that he's a point guard. I mean, at the Euro U18s, which probably isn't quite the same level of competition as NCAA, he put up almost a 23% turnover percentage, which that's just too high. I think that at this point, with his shooting ability and his size, it's just safer to consider him as shooting guard, and that's that's what I'd want him to be at least for now. I think if you wanted to turn him into a point guard, I think a team, if they invested a lot of resources into it, may be able to do that. But I think it's just easier to look at him as more of a playmaking shooting guard than a point guard at this point.
1: Yeah, I I, I understand. You know the aspect that he doesn't always you know take care of the ball as what well you as you would hope from a point guard with that you're taking so high he seems to fit well in that shooting guard position he does uh, have a re- good size at six five and a seven uh, foot wing span so that's certainly an upside and he certainly is a decent uh, sh- uh has a good shot uh control and has good range with it so I-, I i understand that you know he may not completely fit that one spot so if you shift him to that two spot and Makes sense and how you'd use them so th- that's certainly interesting but uh, I-, I really liked him in uh his time playing in europe so that's certainly an interesting case so uh moving on to another uh um guy that I- i've been interested in talk to uh at right after Nila Kina is uh, uh the shooting guard out of duke luke uh Kennard, while uh, in my view, he what he didn't have a stellar NBA combine. He certainly didn't he, he miss shift that much in terms of his position rank. So uh, of course, you're talking about he's a good uh, three-point shooter, but you know he lacks s- too much speed and has some big defensive problems. In my view, what role? What? Why do you see him as a good spot at that number 14 pick? And what what do you think he's gonna be? used as in the NBA if he doesn't have that, you know, the same defensive liabilities as some of the other, you know, guys that may be undersized for their position?
0: Um, well, actually I had Kennard at 15, not 14, but, uh, oh, four, Yeah. you're good. Um. Uh, The thing with Kennard is I just think he's already a very advanced offensive player, and he's so smart, and he's got a lot that really, I think, can translate to the NBA level on offense. I don't think he'll ever be an elite defender, but... He tries hard on defense a lot of the time, and I think that that will help him, you know, if he can get try hard and get smarter in terms of off-ball defense. I think he can survive on that end. It's just, offensively, I think he's such a great prospect. You know, he shot 62% at the rim, uh, 82% of those looks are unassisted, which that's pretty underrated in terms of his ability to get to the rim and score. And then just, he drew a lot of fouls too for some sharp sh- for a sharp shooting, shooting guard prospect, you know, 5.7 free throw attempts per 40. That's a pretty good number for a non-big man, especially a guy who's considered really a sharpshooter. And his shooting stroke is really one of the best in this draft. You know, 43.8% from three, 85.6% from the free throw line. He's He's got a great stroke. It looks really good. And then another thing that I really like to see from him is he shot 48% on two-pointers that weren't at the rim. That's one of the best numbers I've seen from anyone in this draft, particularly guard prospects. And 80% of those shots were unassisted. So he's he's got great scoring at all three levels. And while I don't know that his rim scoring is necessarily going to be able to translate to the NBA because he's not overly explosive and he doesn't have a lot of length and he's not super, you know, he's not super the type of guy who's going to go straight into contact. I think that he's going to be an elite sharpshooter from the outside and mid-range. And I also think he's a very good playmaker. He's very underrated as a playmaker. Posted a 13.6 assist percentage last season and was a very low turnover player only 9.3 turnover percentage so he makes good decisions and his height allows him to see over the top of the defense and just in terms of his in terms of his offensive value uh, last year at Duke he posted the third highest offensive win shares in the NCAA with 5.5 eighth highest offensive box plus minus at 8.4 and the highest offensive rating in the ACC with 130.6 so I think that he's just going to be a very good offensive player at the next level who, you know, is probably going to be a problem on defense for most of his career or never get even better than average. But I just think his offensive value is going to be so much that he's going to be a valuable player in the NBA.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You have so many guys, I think, in this draft that can fit in that two spot really well that you have. Guys that have, you know, decent size that can be shooting guards and have good uh, shooting range and, you know, are decent athletes. Uh, uh, I've had questions, you know, as you're talking about, about Kennard's size. You know, he didn't look too – He he's not a huge guy and he certainly – has a good touch on the ball, but has it doesn't get super physical. So I uh, I think that you know if you get him at that 15 pick, that seems decent. But you have to wonder, you know, where you have guys w- where the vast majority of elite shooting guards that we see in the league can also uh, make a big impact on defense. So I think that it'll be an interesting scenario if you value as you're talking about his ability to create his own shot and get open on offense over his more defensive liabilities as you can see where he didn't play super great at Duke on the other end of the floor so that was certainly an interesting spot to see you know since there's so many shooting guards in this draft how they all pan out yeah definitely so yeah that's fascinating
0: yeah uh who do you got next to talk about in terms of uh the guys on my big board
1: Yeah, so after Luke Kennard, we have uh, number 16, Jared Allen, who is, you know, that's about fitting. We've talked about him before, and we both uh, seem like he has good value. But the guy I want to talk about is one spot below him at number 17, Cameron Oliver, the big man out of Nevada, uh, power forward. So this is certainly an interesting position for me. Uh, It seems like Cameron Oliver has been, moving all over mock drafts and seeing where people go, uh, where he'll go in the draft. So now what I know from Keller Oliver, he looked good at Nevada, of course, and that was a very talented team, but I never quite viewed him as a guy that's close to cracking, you know, the top 15, top, and in the top 18. Why is there, uh, where I've seen him, other places, it hasn't been as high, you know, he's been in the, uh, lower, even lower than uh, top thirty picks. So, why why do you think there's been such a big gap in where you put him and where other guys have put him so far?
0: Well, I just think people have really underrated his shot blocking ability. I don't think many people have taken that quite into account because I think people have noticed his shooting ability. You know, 33, 30, or excuse me, thirty seven percent from three on two hundred thirty three attempts at the college level. That's a very good sample size in terms of. Size and shooting ability, and then of course, he has a good looking stroke, so I don't think people are questioning his shooting ability. I think they're more questioning where he fits on defense, and I can understand that because you know he does have some issues with discipline. Last season, he had let me check 17 games with four more fouls, so that was definitely something that I worried about with him on the defensive end. But his 8.7 block percentage over the course of his career at Nevada is really good, especially for a power forward. A guy who's a secondary ring protector, and he has that ability to be a power forward because you know he's got he's got quick feet. He can slide with guards on the defensive end, out on the perimeter, and of course he can slide with your power forward types, you know, your Harrison Barnes, your Ryan Anderson's, your whoever. Power forward's such a diverse position in the NBA, but I think Cameron Oliver's got the ability to defend it because he's six foot eight with a seven foot one wingspan, a chiseled two hundred and thirty-eight-pound frame. So I think he'll be able to handle a lot of different types of small forwards on the defensive end. But then you combine that shot blocking ability and his ability to be a secondary rim protector. And secondary rim protectors are so valuable to NBA defenses. You look at a guy like Alfaru Aminu, who's a really good shot blocker for a forward, and the impact that he has on that Trailblazer's defense, uh without him, they're one of the they're probably the worst defense in the league. But when he gets on there, they jump to being almost league average. And that just shows you the value. I mean, I Amino mean, obviously does other stuff, but it just shows you the value that a secondary rim protector at the forward spot can have on a defense. And that's not even accounting for the fact that Oliver's a very good offensive player. He averaged around 16 points a game last year at Nevada. He had 37% from three, and he's flashed some ability to attack off the dribble when he gets closed out hard on. And he's got some flashes of passing ability. He put up an 11.9 assist percentage last year. That's good. And at the rim last year... He shot 75%. So he's a bouncy athlete. He's a really good athlete. And his ability to just rise up for dunks and finish around the rim and then, of course, finish finish from the three-point line and be an efficient offensive player. I mean, he did struggle with efficiency a little bit in Nevada because he likes pulling for long twos, and that's something that I think he needs to work on pull, getting rid of in his game is that propensity to take mid-range shots. And, you know, sometimes he doesn't get all the way to the rim. But his ability to be a two-way weapon and contribute... In many different ways, and just be a valuable player. I really like that.
1: Yeah, he. I liked him at Nevada, and he was certainly a, a high-powered offensive weapon. Yeah, that was a good point that you're talking about. He's a, has a really good size and frame for a power forward, and has really good defensive, uh, defensive IQ and understanding where guy's going to be and how to protect the paint. And he has a really impressive wingspan, almost 7'2". So that was certainly good. He certainly looked good at the NBA combine. So he and had excellent measurements. So that, that was an interesting scenario for him. So hopefully he can uh, live up to all the pressure that you're putting on him. He certainly is interest in an interesting class since there's a good, really good crop of power forwards in this draft. Where you think of, you know, you have guys like Cameron Oliver, you have Jonah Bolden, you have Isaiah Hardenstein, guys that can be really big impact impact players that uh, play that four spot. So that's certainly an interesting spot if he does go uh, as high as 17.
0: Yeah, I don't think he'll end up going that high. You know, just because. Again, that mainstream draft community has trended away from him. You know, Teams probably don't value that production in the Mountain West as much, and he's almost 21, so he, he's a bit older. But I, I just think that his production, his athleticism, and his shooting ability are going to translate to the NBA, and it's going to make him a valuable player.
1: Yeah, it's yeah, certainly an interesting case. That Nevada team was very talented and was a lot of fun to watch. So, the next guy that I have, it's a little bit of jump, but he certainly is an interesting case scenario. Uh, uh, the South Carolina guard, Cinderius Thornwell, seems like Thornwell has risen and fallen a lot this year. Of course, he did really well at South Carolina when they made the Final Four and was, the, of course, the staple of their offense there, but he had an, uh, sort of a stagnant uh, nba draft combine so it, it, it's certainly interesting and in how he's been moving around what's been the biggest factor for you in seeing how thornwell will fit in this draft class and uh, you know where you he will ultimately you know rank
0: thornwell's a guy that i've really had trouble with where do i fit him in i've got him at 45 right now but of course my draft notebook is a volatile thing and so i'm not really sure you know i I'll move guys around and stuff. And at the moment, I've got thrown out 45, but I just, I can't figure him out because he's a good scorer. I mean, he put up almost, he put up 21 a game last year in an offense that was just awful. And he did it fairly efficiently. I mean, he had a 30, a per of about 30. And then he put up some crazy box plus minus numbers. His box plus minus was like 16 or something, that, which is one of the highest numbers uh, in the history of that stat and the college level. And, he put up a great defensive numbers, mean, a 3.6 steal percentage, 6.7 defensive box plus minus, uh, 2.8 defensive win shares. Th- those are all great numbers for him to put up, and he's a great drawing fouls, you know, 9.9 free throw attempts for 40, 83%, and he shot 39% from three on a pretty high volume of attempts, but I just, you know, he's almost 23, I mean, that age thing comes into it, but I think when you get up into the 23, 24 range, it becomes much more of an issue, and just... I just don't know exactly how he translates to the NBA because he's not really a very good athlete. I mean, you watch his jump shot, he barely gets any elevation. He has pretty good arc on it, but I mean, when you have such little elevation, it's probably going to be an adjustment period to the NBA three-point line no matter what. And then you just factor in, you know, what else does he bring to your offense? Does he grade out as such a remarkable defender? going against more athletic guys each night because, yeah, he's got good physical profile. I mean, 6'5", 6'10", wingspan at 211 pounds and put up some great numbers on the defensive end. But I just, I don't know. I mean, he he shot only around 40% from the floor for two months out of the year. He only shot 59% at the rim. And I I just don't know how, you know, are those stats on the defensive end boosted from playing in a South Carolina system that was geared towards defense with some great defensive players? So I, I'm just, I don't know, I have a lot of questions around Thornwell, and his performance at the Combine definitely did not answer any of them. So I want to put him higher because I love his stats, but I just can't bring myself to do it because I don't know how well he's going to translate.
1: Yeah, that's interesting, and that's a case where stats, you know, doesn't always tell the full story he was a really incredible player at South Carolina and completely drove that team. But you have to think, of course, you're talking about they were the number one defensive team in the country, but it was it based solely based on his potential or was it the entire system that inflated those stats for him? So that's certainly interesting. And, of course, you talk about he has so many weapons on at the college level on in an offense but how will those you know continue to develop and progress to the nba level where you're uh, competing up against faster you know stronger bigger guys where you have a guy with a shot that doesn't have a perfect uh form where it's lower or doesn't have as much height or elevation as you'd want so that's certainly an interesting scenario and where he'll go will certainly fluctuate in uh the coming weeks and uh with his interesting, you know, showing at the Combine. You, he never really set himself in one spot, so that that's certainly a temperamental factor.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, those advanced stats really jumped out to me, and I wanted to say, like, oh, my God, he's the next Malcolm Brogdon, and people are going to wonder why he fell in the second round, but, you know, there are other guys who put up crazy value stats in college and then didn't become great NBA players. You know, it's not like if every guy who put up a 16 BPM or whatever – was a a great player? Then teams would just be drafting guys with sixteen BPMs. It's not that simple. So, it's it's Thornwell's a unique case, and he's a guy that was very hard to place. But I feel good putting him at forty five for now. But probably in a week I'll feel different because you know this he's one of those type of players.
1: Yeah, he's certainly never uh quite you're never quite finished with where he sits. So going back to sort of the more uh, chronological ordering of. The guys that we've been looking at, the one of the interesting cases I've seen with uh, who's been fluctuating a little bit was the center, Justin Patton, out of Creighton. We both liked him, especially you, a lot uh, going into the combine. Uh, he was one of the best offensive players in the country at Creighton uh, with a huge wingspan at 7'3", and of course he's a very... Big high powered center at measuring at at six eleven, uh, but you know he didn't obviously didn't have as we've talked about a great NBA combine. You still have him at number nineteen. How, how do you think how do you see his value going forward? Did that NBA combine performance where he didn't measure out great in some of the physical tests impact how you view him or whether he's going to be an efficient center going into this draft?
0: Well. Patton, I wasn't super worried about the combine. The only thing that really concerned me was his uh, his really slow 3-quarter court sprint time because I viewed him as a pretty big transition weapon just off of the tape and stuff, but then after seeing him at the combine run so slow, I was wondering if maybe that was a bit of a mirage or what. And then in terms of his measurements, I think he measured fine. You know, 6 love with a 7-3 wingspan. I think he's definitely big enough to play center in the NBA. I just think the reason that I'm a little bit lower on him now is you know, I dove deeper into his tape, and I was just sort of, I was less impressed than I was off the surface by him. You know, he's got some really cool flashes to his game. You know, he shot 8 for 15 from 3 last year. He finished 81% at the rim. He's he's shown some flashes of just moving around really well, and he's got those perimeter game flashes, you know, 8.5 assist percentage. It's a look into that sort of upside he has on the perimeter, and if he gets that three-point shot it becomes really interesting but he the main issue for me with him was just the more I watch him I just he's so averse to contact and it hinders his game so much that I don't know if he's gonna be able to be a very effective center because he's just so averse to contact I mean you look he's a very poor rebounder 13.8 total rebound percentage that's like almost in the neighborhood of some small forwards in this draft so that's a really poor number in terms of his rebounding ability and then just his free throw shooter, free throw shooting fifty two percent. That's a liability no matter what, especially for a guy who you know you're kind of hoping for him to develop that perimeter game. That's something I'd worry about. And then one thing that really stood out to me was only three point nine free throw attempts per forty minutes. Just again showing up that complete, uh, just like he doesn't want to feel contact. He's not into banging around on the inside. And with a center, I think that's something that you have to have. So just his. His lack of IQ, his lack of toughness, I just don't know if he's going to be able to capitalize on his tools going forward.
1: Yeah, he uh, really did well, you know, in the first half of the year at Creighton. And then he sort of completely fell off of a cliff when they lost one of their guards there. And Maurice, Maurice showed Watson. That, you know, he certainly has holes in his game. Of course, as you're talking about, he's not a proficient rebounder, which is, uh, as I see it always, a... You're, big weakness for a center at that five position that you really want a guy that can collect those boards and get uh you back into transition on the other side so that that was certainly interesting and as you're talking about he's not a guy that's going to be physical down inside and be able to get you those knit and grit points that you need from a center at a lot of times so that that certainly was interesting, and it'll be interesting. Cause he certainly has great physical skills. You're talking about a guy who's, uh, excuse me, very big, big, has a great wingspan, and while he isn't overly muscular, he you know has great physical tools. Even though he didn't have a great uh, three quarter sprint, so it shows that uh, you know, regardless of his physical skills, he may not be that ideal target that you want
0: yeah I still think he's a good first round option just because he's got those tools and he's flashed the that upside on both ends. I just think of teams we have to coach him up a lot and you know teach him to harness that ability uh The guy I compared him to uh, a while back was DeAndre Jordan, and I still kind of stick with that because you know DeAndre Jordan wasn't a great rebounder coming out of college at all, and he talked about uh how he sort of just learned rebounding over the course of his n b a career. From you know, veteran centers who he was on teams with and they taught him how to be a better rebounder. And it really took DeAndre Jordan, you know, four or five years before he was a very good player. And I could see Patton following that similar path. You know, maybe he doesn't end up being as good as DeAndre Jordan. You know, DeAndre Jordan was a first team All NBA guy last year, but in terms of taking a while to develop, uh, in terms of learning the game as a center, I could see him being a guy like that.
1: Yeah, he certainly is a project. You have to put some elbow grease into fixing him up, but he certainly has the tools to do it. Now, the next guy I guess that we will uh, touch on is this draft has so many uh, of these fascinating, you know, combo forwards, uh, and one of the ones uh, I'd like to talk about, you know, one of those interesting guys, and one of your favorites, so it was interesting where you placed him, uh, Semi Ojale, the combo forward as I was talking about out of SMU, he certainly is one of those high-powered offensive guys, but has questions on the other end of the floor. Uh, Jackson, where do you see his, you know, his ranking in terms of all of these combo forwards in this draft, and you know, how how, how will his uh, deficiencies on, you know, would, uh, weigh over with his strengths, and you know, what what have you seen from him so far?
0: Uh, I've got Ojale at the number twenty player on my board right now. Uh, As you mentioned, he's a combo forward. I do see him as more of a power forward just because I think he's got enough size to play there. And if you've got a guy with perimeter game who's big enough, uh, I don't see why you don't stick him at the power forward spot. Uh, He's 6'7 with a 6'10 wingspan at uh, a chiseled 241 pounds. 22 years old. That's older than you'd like. But, I mean, this season at SMU, it's hard to argue with his production. 63% at the rim, 41% on two-pointers outside the rim, and 42% from three. He drew 7.3 free throw attempts per 40 minutes and shot 78.5% at the free throw line, and he ranked second in the entire NCAA in win shares at 7.7. His .257 win shares per 40 ranked fifth in the NCAA. And beyond those stats, he's just a really refined offensive player. You know, he's got a great ISO game, just being able to uh, get into get into the post, uh, use his mid range ability. Or get to the rim or use his jumper he's got a lot of different options that he can go to on offense in terms of getting score getting the getting the ball in the basket and he's got a he's really confident in his jumper he's got a great stroke you know it's it's compact he gets it out quickly it's got good arc there aren't really any questions I have regarding his jump shot because I think he's very good at it it's just what I worry about with Ojale is as you mentioned on the defensive end because it's not about the tools. I mean, he's got good lateral quickness. He's got switchability on the perimeter and stuff. And as I mentioned, he's got that great frame. What I'm worried about with him is just his IQ, his effort level, and his activity on that end. You know, he's got a .8 steal percentage, a 1.6 block percentage, which is always bad signs for looking at guy's defensive activity. And he just... Larger power forwards can really shoot over him, which is a problem for him because when he gets shot over pretty easily because, you know... He doesn't have great size defending those bigger power forwards, and then he he's struggles against some of those quicker guards because, you know, he is a little bit bulky, and he doesn't exactly have quickness against, like, some quicker small forwards, you know, those, uh like, Josh Jackson types, maybe. So, that's what I worry about with him is just where he fits on defense and his activity level. I mean, he's only 11.8 total rebound percentage, not a great number for a guy who's playing mostly power forward SMU. So... I'm just worried about his activity level on that end of the court. I do love his offensive ability. I think he's going to be a great offensive player in the NBA uh, as an ISO option or as an off-the-ball option given his shooting ability and freakish athleticism. Uh, just defensively, I, I don't know if he's ever going to be that locked in, and that's what I worry about.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting case scenario because he's at 6'7". He has a good frame, but you he may be a liability where you put him against... Uh, slightly, uh, slightly bigger power forwards, where he may not be able to contain them. Being a smaller guy, of course, he is strong, but you know, you have guys that can shoot over him, or you know, be able to see and get that. Still have a good touch on the ball since he's that undersized uh, power forward that uh, may become a liability. But he, he certainly does have you know good strength. So if you certainly put in the effort into developing his defensive game and he puts his mind to it too uh, I think that he can you know hopefully develop that part of his game he, he, that's an interesting case scenario as you're talking about where he's sort of stuck between two positions where he may not be able to uh, hang with faster you know more transition based small forwards so since he is a bulkier dude he's uh, as you're talking about very built where he may get beat to the punch with that not as quick first step as some small smaller power forwards and then you know he doesn't may not be outreached or can't fully uh, get his hand on uh, the shot of a bigger power forward so that's an interesting scenario but he certainly is a well-rounded offensive option and whatever team gets him is certainly getting you know a versatile player
0: yeah definitely uh, another thing I want to mention with him is Lack of shot creation for others. He only had a nine point three assist percentage. That's pretty low for a guy who had the ball in his hands so much. So once again, just he's got that scoring ability, but he's kind of like Jason Tatum, where it's like he can score, but what else can he do? I want to see that. So that that's my question with Ojale, But I do think he'll be a valuable player in the NBA. It's just a matter of you know what can he do on defense.
1: Yeah, that's that's certainly a case scenario for I guess a lot of the guys that we've been talking about so far. So. That's certainly interesting. Uh, do you have any other things that you want to tell the people, and you know, interesting things about your uh, board?
0: Um, let me take a look at the board real quick to see if there's anything else that I wanted to cover with it. Again, if you want to view the my twenty seventeen NBA draft notebook, which I definitely encourage you to do if you're a fan of the draft, which I'm guessing you are if you're listening to this, visit uh, rebrand.ly slash jhoy draft rebrand.ly slash j-h-o-y-d-r-a-f-t uh it's got all 75 breakdowns my top 75 and this will be updated constantly you know if the guys some guy pulls out of the draft or some guy you know rises up in my mind i'll be moving stuff around definitely so uh be mindful of that and in terms of guys that i want to talk about a little more uh two guys that i wanted to cover pretty quickly uh that are lower on my board than most people were Terrence Ferguson and Hamadou Diallo, who I respectively have at 49 and 50, which might shock some people because, you know, Ferguson's a guy that people have projected in the middle of the first round, and Diallo's a guy that people have projected, you know, early second, maybe even into the first, and some people have talked about him in the lottery. And they're fairly similar prospects, honestly. You know, they're both these elite athlete shooting guards who, have a lot of bounce and some good size. You know, Ferguson's 6'7 with a 6'9 wingspan. Diallo's 6'5 with a 6'11 wingspan. And they're both young. You know, Ferguson, 19 years old. Hamadou, 18.8 years old. And neither of them played NCAA ball last season. You know, Hamadou Diallo was playing in high school and then practiced with Kentucky, whereas Ferguson was over in the uh, Australian NBL playing with the Adelaide 36ers. And just both these guys, I just think people are overrating their potential and not taking into account their weaknesses enough you know people have talked about ferguson as this knockdown shooter but something i discussed with chris horridale on the deepest thoughts podcast was that you know ferguson really is riding his reputation as a shooter off of getting hot in the nike hoop summit uh, last year and shooting i think eight for eight from three in that game and that's basically all that people uh, take his potential as a shooter off of i mean last year in the nbl he shot 31 percent from three and 60% from the free throw line, and so that's what I'd worry about this three-point shot, and then if he's not shooting from out there, he's really not offering you a whole lot else, because he's very unrefined, you know, he's a decent athlete, but I mean, he he didn't shoot well from two-point this year in the NBL either, and he, you know, he's not much of a playmaker, he's a decent defender, but he has so much he needs to learn, just like any other young player, so I'd be worried about Ferguson, and then Diallo uh, has some pretty similar questions, I mean, He was a much worse shooter in the uh, uh, AAU last season. I mean, he shot 18% from three-point and something like 56% from the free-throw line. Just awful numbers as a shooter. And on two-point shots, he shot under 50% as well. So I'd just be worried about him as this freak athlete but who doesn't really offer a lot because, I mean, he has a lot to learn on the defensive end. He's pretty unrefined on that end. And it's hard to judge him because he doesn't have any real competition to judge them off of and so those two guys are I just be worried about because I I don't I don't know if you can really put them that high so I just those are two guys that I think are being overrated just because you know they're big jumpers and they don't do a lot of other stuff so I'd be wary about those two guys
1: yeah that's interesting though both of those guys are in a similar situation uh, one guy that I just wanted to get your you know final thoughts on you. I I was just looking down the list and it's certainly a comprehensive list. But one of the guys that sort of jumped on me, you had T. J. Leaf, the U C L A power forward, uh, way down at forty six. That seems like you know I've seen him going a lot higher than that. You know mid first round or even higher. What? What do you think uh, of you know T.J. Leaf and why, why did you position him uh, firmly in the second round?
0: Well, I don't hate T.J. Leaf, but the thing that just with him was, I mean, he's older than most freshmen. He's already twenty, so that that was one thing. And then he just has so many questions on the defensive end. You know, I don't see where he fits on defense because he's not big enough to be a center. He's only six ten with a six eleven wingspan. He can't defend small forwards because he's not nearly quick enough, and he really struggled defending even power forwards last season because he doesn't move around he very well. He's not very smart. He he can't contain guards in pick and pick-and-roll defense. I mean, he's just going to get put in pick-and-rolls over and over again at the NBA level because he's such a liability in that part of his defense, and I'd be worried a lot about that, and he he's pretty lazy on defense, you know. He, he kind of just reaches instead of actually sliding over to help. Uh, that whole UCLA team had problems on defense, but Leaf definitely did not help those problems. And I just think that Leaf is overblown as a stretch four prospect. You know, I think people just see that he shot 47% from three, and then like, oh my God, you know, he's this huge stretch four. But that only came on a very small sample. Uh, he only shot, let me check, I think it was something like less than 53s last season at UCLA, like, he barely shot uh, three pointers last year. It was a very small sample. He shot 27 for 58 from three. That's not a very su- huge sample. And when you factor in the fact that he shot 68% from the free throw line, I'd be a little more worried about that jumper being legit than not. And I think most of his points you know, just came from the fact that he was within an offense that allowed him, afforded him the opportunity to get a lot of good open looks. You know, I I do think he's a good offensive player. You know, he shot 77% at the rim, 45% on two-pointers outside the rim. Those are some pretty elite numbers. But at the same time, I think that in such a transition-oriented offense, he was allowed to get such easy looks. And I'd be worried about how his offensive game translates to the NBA in the half court and just what he'll be able to do in the NBA, particularly when when he's getting targeted in pick-and-rolls on defense.
1: Yeah, that's... Those are some interesting points you have. That you're talking about. He has, you know, he has good size for a power forward. He's six ten, and he's a big dude. But as you're talking about, he he didn't. As you're talking, you uh was obviously a, a big part of that transition-based offense, where it's the probably the biggest or most high-powered offense in the country at UCLA. So when you're giving him all these open shots, you expect him to be able to convert them. And it, that's probably why, you know, some of the stats that he had jumped out So uh, as, the, as much as they did. So certainly he looked good on paper, but you have to think about his defensive liability, as you're saying, that he has trouble hanging with bigger guys at that five spot. So he doesn't really fit as a center since... The you'll get bullied or you know hit around uh, with bigger guys that are you know more built up and are stronger, and then where you have guys at the power forward spot where he he may be just as big or even bigger than them, but he doesn't have that mobile defense that you'd hope from a guy at that wing spot. So it's certainly an interesting position. I think that he looked looked really good in that offense. You know, as you assume as. Oh, was such a uh, offense-based team, but he looked good in that system, and I think that he worked well with, you know, a a pass first and high-powered, you know, point guard in Lonzo Ball, so he was a good complement to him, and of course, as you're talking about, while he did shoot a very few, uh, small amount of threes, he did look good while he did them, he has a nice touch with the ball, but as you're talking about it makes sense that he's stuck in this sort of strange situation where you are figuring out where to put him and you know where exactly he fits
0: yeah definitely i mean i i'm not going to hate a team if they take him in the first round i i i can see the justification it just he didn't jump out to me in that way
1: yeah yeah it makes sense
0: all right you got anything else you want to cover with this
1: uh no man. Well, everybody go check out the list. It's certainly interesting, and there's a lot of guys that if you want to learn more about them, they're all up here. So uh, they're it's certainly uh very comprehensive, and uh guys go check it out and make sure to you know keep keep up to date and uh give us give us any feedback if you want to see guys that aren't on the list or if you want to see guys shifted. So we're uh open to all of your comments and thanks everybody for tuning in and uh hope hopefully you guys check out the list
0: yeah thanks for listening uh once again if you want to view the list it's rebrand.ly slash jhoydraft. uh we'll put the link in the description for this as well and yeah go check it out and we'll have more content coming later this week uh we'll see you guys later see you all right
1: see you guys in a few days bye